0: All right. And we are gonna go in three, two, one. Welcome to American gunslingers presenting Ubaldi Reports.
1: Hey everybody, this is John at Ubaldi Reports, the one podcast that provides fact not fiction on issues facing America, whether domestically or internationally, but being put together by three veterans, two of us that served in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, and one is also retired um Medically retired Marine. So how's it going to my co-host? How's it going, Joe and Ray?
0: Great, John. Pretty good. Well, How good. Are you doing?
1: Well, today's interesting. I mean, I know we, I, when I said the segue, we're talking about two of us have served in combat in both in Iraq and Afghanistan. But this one, we're going to be talking about our, um, Iraq. And on Monday, the 20th of March, is going to be the 20th anniversary of the conflict in Iraq starting. So that has a whole ramifications. Everybody has different opinions, especially now. People blame Bush because he lied about how we got in, how it was conducted. There's many different um elements to this now, Joe, when were you in Iraq?
0: um I was in Iraq from uh two thousand go in there two thousand four
1: okay I got there in March of two thousand five But I was activated because I was in the reserves in 2001. So I was at the MEF, which is the Marine Expeditionary Force, which is the highest level the Marine fights at. And we were planning through 2002, we were planning the um, invasion of Iraq. And everything was about we're going to go in. It was almost going to be a desert storm light. It wasn't going to be as many troops as we had in the Persian Gulf War which equated to about 500,000 troops. We were going to send in about 250,000 between Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And with the Army and the Marines doing the bulk of the fighting inside Iraq, and obviously we had Navy, Army, I mean, Navy, Air Force units. But, uh, but nothing was planned of what would happen after we went into Iraq. So, okay, so nothing but it was was transpiring of how we went into Iraq, what would happen after the conflict was over. Now, it's interesting to note, when I got back from Afghanistan in December 2002, I was back at Camp Pendleton, where the MEF headquarters was at, and there was a colonel who picked up General, and we had a good working relationship because I worked with them in Afghanistan. And this is in January 2003, and I said, Sir, I heard what we're going to do once we get into Iraq, but I've never heard what was going to happen after the war was over. And he says, I'm sure they had something. they didn't. And then in June of 2003, once the war was over, we kicked Saddam out and toppled his regime. All the military personnel were coming back, and there was no plan for post-stability Iraq. And we saw that would have happened where we went into this insurgency. We kind of got it in fits and starts until we realized we are in a full-blown insurgency. Well, and What it, was your experience, though?
0: So my experience uh, in Iraq was just kind of like, I don't know. I mean, because um, prior to, because we went in about 2003, right?
1: 2003, March two thousand three. And it was
0: just right after Fallujah. And Which then I was, came I came out of a training unit, and I went right into...
1: Are you talking the second battle of Fallujah in December of two thousand? Right after they uh, hung
0: those, the Blackwater.
1: That would have been... Um, the spring of two thousand um, four.
0: Okay, and then so I went in probably two thousand four, two thousand five, right as right before, because um, I just I went from a training unit in Paris Island, then I went over okay. to, uh, you know, into an infantry unit, and basically it was kind of like thrusted or like okay, guess what? We're going to California because they wanted us to do a CAX.
1: Yeah, there, and just so that people know, a CAX is a combined arms exercise. But at the time, they changed the CACs to be like a Mojave Viper, where they were yeah. training you at a, a built-up facility that was simulating what you would face in Iraq.
0: Yeah, and then they took us over to a retired Army Air Force housing base, where they just turned that into pretty much a, a combat town. Correct. Where they took, put, like, Marine units in different areas, and you would you would treat it as if you were, like, in the desert. Uh, so it was kind of like right from front of the gate. As soon as I got into that unit, it was kind of like thrusted into like combat mode. So when I got there initially, I've been training, you know, years and finally getting into, uh, an infantry unit that's going uh, overseas, I kind of didn't take it. I didn't say that I, I didn't take it. It's not like I didn't take it seriously, but I was almost like a duck to water. I was like, okay. Now I know where I am.
1: Okay, because for me, I went in I was a active duty when I first joined the Marines in the '80s. Then I was reserves ever since, and yep. I was called up right after 9/11 to work at the MEF as an um, assistant operations chief. Mm-hmm. So I was directly involved where all the planning was taking place for the war to go into Iraq. Then I got they asked me if I wanted to volunteer for Afghanistan because at this time we weren't we were planning Iraq. We weren't sure we were going to do Iraq. So I went to Afghanistan and I came back when everybody was forward waiting for the call to cross the border into Iraq. This is where I got to meet. With, I had a good relationship with this colonel because mm-hmm. I served with him in Afghanistan and he took care of the Marines that were left back at Camp Pendleton. And we used to talk all the time. And that's when I mentioned about there was no really a plan like the, the before the end of World War II, They had the Morgenthau plan, which was a starting off point what was going to happen for the reconstruction of Germany and later Japan. But um, so there was just none of this. So then when I went, I went to um, – as a civil affairs unit. A civil affairs unit for the Marines is like a modern-day version of FEMA. We would go in and work, try to get a government up and and running. Other parts of the world, we would do just various projects – Coordinate with the locals, but in Iraq, we were trying to get it up a, a government up and running. Um, and we were doing that in, um, I was in Ramadi, which was in the Anbar province. This is pre surge because I left in September of 2000. Um, to, to, to September, t- well, almost no, I got back in October
0: mm-hmm.
1: of 2000. Um, well, I guess the end of September because I remember my mom, I got the word when I, as soon as I arrived in the States, my mom had passed away. Yeah. So I got that Red Cross message, and she died on October the 1st. So I got it just – we probably landed on the 27th or 28th of September. So that was my my focus for Iraq. But it was different. I mean, we were training for all this time to go. Mm-hmm. We had various units. So I went probably two years after the initial – Invasion had took taken place, and we were getting in the throes of the insurgency before the the surge of forces that finally broke the back of Al Qaeda in yeah. two thousand six, seven, and eight.
0: So when I was right before I about to go to Iraq, I did a little. I went to leave. I know I had my my leave, and we went to Jersey as my wife and I. Okay. Uh, prior to uh, we weren't dating, or we were just dating. We weren't married yet, and I stopped at my cousin's house. Who's right next to me. Because <laughs> okay. he gave me something to take to Iraq with me. I did. Yeah. What did he give you? It was like a it was a donkey a do black it, to, it was a I red white it was a red, white, and blue or like American flag, donkey beanie baby. Oh, uh, okay. And I took that thing uh to Iraq. And I think I still have it. It's 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 lingering around here somewhere. Okay, okay. But that was kinda like and then so this was like Ray back in two thousand four. How old were you? 2004 it yeah was 10 yeah it was like you know 10 or 11 right before right before we were about to t- right before we we're about to take off so but that was kind of like my initial kind of okay. like
1: how did your parents deal with the fact that you got sent to Iraq I mean no parent wants your kid to go to war
0: I don't know uh I just knew how they felt when I came back after I was injured and they came back and uh-huh. but you know they could they were also maybe a little bit relieved as well because they're just like you know because it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of crappy but you're like well at least they didn't die see
1: for my parents were different it, it, my parents always supported me to join the marines but i was in the marines for a number of years prior to 9 11 i thought i was just going to do my 20 and get out then 9 mm-hmm. 11 happened and then i volunteered to go on active duty I volunteered to go to iraq and afghanistan but my parents weren't exactly thrilled when I got called to Iraq. No, no. no. parent. This is when the throes of the war, when the war was not doing too well. And I remember I got in an argument with my dad because I went. And that was the last time I would see my mom alive once I waved to her because obviously you couldn't go into the terminal because of the restrictions they had on flying.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was that was it. And I think for my mom, she took it a little differently because... I got, you know mothers don't want their kid going to war but war did had a different feel for her because she remembered her first love that I think was gonna was somebody she was gonna marry was killed <laughs> in the um, the Korean War so and then my dad had served in the Italian Navy during the war and I know the jokes about the Italian Navy and the Italians but war is war when you see your buddies and he told us he saw his buddies get killed half his body f- split in half mm-hmm. during naval battles, war is, is still war. Your friends are still there. I mean, the, the adage of when we were getting hit in Iraq a couple times, not to say I was in the throes of combat, but a couple times we did get into some stuff, and they always say that you don't fight for flag or country or patriotism, you fight for your buddies. That, was more, that has never been truer. You're, I didn't care who the guy left or right, as long as they got me home. And I remember we were inside a building, and two of my Marines were outside, and they had to grab me because I was running to go outside and be with them, because that's all I was thinking about. These are my guys. Mm-hmm. So it's now it's different when you go to war.
0: Now towards the end, and we're not saying it like it didn't. It's been 20 years since the beginning of the uh, Iraq, Iraq War, war but Iraq. as it kind of came to a close did you notice that it came to a close or was it just kind of like oh we're not there anymore Well,
1: I think it's, it was weird because
0: because that, that was a good extraction that's the way we should have done well, Afghanistan. because
1: <laughs> the problem with the, the ending the way it ended and I know people can go back and forth why we were there Bush lied I got all that but it was surreal because we had to go back mm-hmm. and there was no plan that was the whole thing I faulted President Bush is there was no plan once we removed Saddam Hussein. And I mentioned it, and I was a gunny, which was an E-7. This is before I knew all the stuff I knew now. And one of the questions I raised was, this is before the war even started. What happens when you take a sitting government out? What was replacing it? Now, General Zini, who was the CENTCOM commander before Tommy Franks took over, who led the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan— he put out a paper called Desert Crossing, which was declassified. And basically, after they did Desert frocks in 98, where they bombed Saddam's targets and stuff, he realized either that the people are going to take him out or we're going to have to do it. So he came up with this exercise trying to get all national security element departments to take part, and they never did. So all the assumptions he came up with were the assumptions that we faced in Iraq. So when he called back to CENTCOM, he never said who he talked to. Mm-hmm. So I can only speculate who it would have been. But he talked to him. He says, "What is? Have you got, what are you doing with Desert Crossing? And he goes, what's that? Never heard of it. Then he realized, oh, crap. And now we can blame political leaders as much as we want, but the military failed to plan or ask for a plan. What happens next? And then this is when we had... Uh, Jay Gardner took over, and then he was replaced abruptly by Paul Bremer, who just made a mess of it because he was arrogant, didn't have any experience in the Middle East, and it finally was when Petraeus, after Bush, uh, the Republicans lost the House and the Senate, he did a surge of forces into Iraq, which proved successful, and it coincided with the um, Arabic, um, the um, Sunni uprising or the um, the Sunni awakening. Well, they, they fought back against al-Qaeda and joined forces with us. But we left in 2010 without any plan. We just said, okay, Maliki, you, you're you now the president, even though he didn't win the national election. So we made mistakes and had to go back because we left a void, and ISIS filled that void.
0: Yeah, and then you had the whole battle of ISIS.
1: Yeah, because there's a sectarian uh, aspect to iraq and when they did the sunni awakening is the sunni tribes revolted against al-qaeda because al-qaeda pushed a very a variant of islam that was is that very conservative or hobbyist version that is not catered it's not practiced in iraq and they were abusing their women their, their wives so the wives and sisters and daughters went back to their families and said this is what's going on and then they realized the Americans may not be the best option, but at least they're trying to do what's best. Right. And we coincided with that. But it just, we never still had a plan. Even when President Obama got out, he just wanted to get out, but without leaving. What's, how does the war end? Is the There's a book I read about that. It's titled, How Do Wars End? And we never planned efficiently for that.
0: So, John, I did want to kind of, maybe like kind of parlay this conversation as well and maybe even talking to more of the current stuff current uh, events that are going on you know because you know it is good to kind of reflect on where we have gone in the past 20 years when it came to iraq but i mean current standing is that we seem to be like on a verge of entering into another skirmish with uh russia and china but also like especially stuff here which is going on and i think like the biggest thing of mine and even like Ray asked me a question today about he's like look I kind of been out of it for a little bit what's going on with the SVB or well, or, or Silicon Valley Bank
1: well, The problem with the Silicon Valley Bank was a unique bank most of the depositors as far as I can understand were investors who they were all catered to the startup companies mm-hmm. but the bank made some key mistakes like they leveraged like uh, treasury bonds and they did They did things like that, but then when interest rates went up, Mm -hmm. it was too cost prohibitive and they made mistakes from there. But also.
0: Now, going from economists, though, they said like when bonds start maybe appreciating in value, that means there's like a sign of like a bad economy or.
1: Sure, because there's uh, treasury bonds are safe investments. Okay. So it should, but what happened is they focused so much on that. But then the also when reports are coming out now that the CEO of that SVB bank mm-hmm. or the Silicon Valley bank was on the board of was on the board of the Federal Reserve in San Francisco, so he was basically regulating his bank. And then the board of directors for the um, Silicon Valley Bank, only one person had banking experience. The rest of them, well, I hate to use the term, were just filling. Diversity, equity, and inclusion positions. Like they tried to get people who had a fir- had a demographical ch- choice mm-hmm. that they wanted. So they trying to get everything through equity, but they didn't get anybody that knew banking. And then we're finding out now that mo- almost everybody who was on that bank donated heavily to either Biden, Clinton, or Obama, or work with them, but they didn't have experience in well, banking.
0: We need, our, we need to start our own bank like Gubaldi Savings and Loan. <laughs> but see, the problem people need
1: to realize, they want to go back to President Trump, where it always seems to go back to him, deregulating certain aspects of Dodd-Frank. Yeah, you know, just the,
0: like the train brakes. Yeah,
1: which was the financial regulatory um, act that passed in 2010. But uh, Barney Frank, who was the architect of that portion, which is called Dodd Frank. he Barney Frank was the House, I think. So, uh, wait, banking wait,
0: chief. wait, can I hold on? You got to backtrack for a second. So they're blaming President Trump for the regulations that were well, no, implemented the, in 2010? No, the,
1: the, the, the banking regulations that came out of the financial collapse in 2008 okay. 09 was Dodd Frank. C- Christopher Dodd was the senator in the Senate. I think he was on the Senate Banking Committee. Mm mm-hmm. um, Barney Frank from Massachusetts was from uh, the House Banking Committee. what Trump deregulated or at least rolled back a few of the regulations in 2018 so that's what they're citing would cause this um, this failure but Barney Frank who's um, on the board of one of the banks I think in New York that kind of had problems mm-hmm. he said it, what was rolled back wouldn't have wouldn't have um, caused this problem. Yeah. What caused the problem or was-, was lo-
0: making ro- wrong decisions. Wrong
1: decisions, not following up, because there, are, there was a banker on one of the news shows said every 18 months, regulators come to our banks and do stress tests, mm-hmm. making sure we have the next assets, we're making sure we're doing everything's right, they look at our book, they go A to Z. Mm-hmm. That wasn't done here. So we have to find out why. Yeah. And it wasn't because of the Trump rollback. It was also because we're spending too much money. Interest rates have gone up. Mm-hmm. But when they were so leveraged in one segment, they didn't diversify their, their portfolio. They did some bad decisions. Even Larry Summers, who was the Treasury Secretary under um, Bill Clinton, and he was a senior economic advisor to Barack Obama, stated they made basically bonehead decisions. It was almost like banking 101, and they failed in the key aspects of banking 101. But that's going into the broader economy where inflation is still high, but President Biden wants to, like his new budget, wants to spend 5 to $6 trillion in new taxes. And the CBO said that's going to raise the national debt about $19 trillion over the next 10-year period.
0: Didn't they want to, like, cap that because we're already at a ceiling, uh, debt ceiling?
1: Well, that's the debt ceiling. The, basically, the debt ceiling is...
0: Where is that a, that was spending.
1: Well, that's like a credit card. Right. You max out on your credit card. Then you go to the credit card company and say, "I need to. you need to raise my credit card limit so I can spend more. Mm-hmm. That's basically what they're doing now. they are reached their max limit of spending, so they want to raise the debt limit so they can spend more instead of figuring out hey, we, we can't spend like this. We need to reduce our spending. now. And everybody goes back to the tax cuts. Like every time there's a tax cut, like the Kennedy tax cuts of 64 that was ushered in by Lyndon Johnson, yeah. the Reagan, Bush Jr., and Donald Trump. But the real reason is spending. We've had last year was the largest um, tax receipts coming into the federal government in U.S. history, but we're still spending at a record clip. We're not solving our spending problems. We're not fixing how we, what we spend and what we do. Yeah. And the, the Biden budget, even though it may be a non-starter because the House controls is now controlled by the Republicans, it's almost reminiscent of the Franklin Roosevelt budget in the late mid 1930s. We were coming out of the Great Depression. He's wants well, to raise taxes on individuals and corporations, and now they had to send money to Washington so they couldn't invest back in their, their companies, and that ushered in a, a second Great Depression. This one, because of what Biden is doing, the business community is going to hold fast. They're going to wait and see who becomes president in 2024. Mm-hmm. To see if they're going to invest back in their companies or if they're going to expand their
0: companies. Well, I heard that you know Biden. So Biden's trying to bring in a new tax proposal. Correct. And Congress has to pass off on that. Yeah, Congress if, always. So has so to so if it's if, so if it's if it's crap, then it's not going to happen.
1: Yeah, because con- Congress has to pass off. On because
0: on wasn't there something about future gains and potential yeah, future exactly? <laughs>
1: Now, Ray, you got, a, you got someone who has got a
0: question? All right, so Beach Baby. Oh, V2 Beach Baby.
1: Love Beach Baby.
0: Says, maybe already stated, uh, but what was Goldman's role in the SVB fail? And I'm-
1: That's a good question. That I don't know at this particular time. We'll have to see as more comes out of it. Um, I mean, that is a very good question because they're one of the, the top um, banking institutions, so I don't know that answer. There might be a role. I don't know. I, I wish I did. I just don't know at this point. It may be too early. We'll find out. Maybe by next week we'll get more of an answer of... Stay tuned. So, I mean, that's it. Maybe we'll know a more what other lending, what was um, uh, Morgan Stanley, what was Chase, what were some of the bigger banks' involvement in this um, Silicon Valley bank. I just don't know at this point.
0: Where does it stand? Or the, So the the administration, the current administration, was very quick to... Come in and say, okay, we're gonna help you out with your money because this is bad. But yet, they're kind of, there were, you know, kind of like, you know, twirling their thumbs when it came to the whole um, EPA crisis up in over in Cleveland when the the train with the train derailment. Well, I think this- so. It seems like this administration, when it comes to your money, we're we're concerned about, you know, maybe say, and, and it's probably certain people who whose money is in that bank that they're trying to protect. Well, I
1: think the reason is this one has a ripple effect that ripples through the economy because this bank failed. There was another bank in New York that uh, f- I think failed as well. So they're afraid that the small regional banks would just have the same problems. So they tried to jump ahead of this faster than they did with the EPA. Um, okay, I do have a question for you. <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
0: They said this is the second largest bank <laughs> failure to happen. Yeah. The, what was the first one and under what administration was it in? That
1: was the uh, Washington Mutual in uh, 2000 2008 under George W George H oh no George W Bush.
0: Okay. So right before Obama picked it up. Right
1: yeah. before Obama picked it up. Okay. But a lot of it I mean in deference to Republicans and this is the same thing deference to Democrats, a lot of these problems cross over administrations. and mm-hmm. just they finally get to a breaking point and then they just crap Mm -hmm. a lot of politicians like to push the pain off beyond their administration so they can say it wasn't me it's that person Well, that person just took the brunt of it Mm -hmm. so it's this one's a little different my question is where were the regulators on this it wasn't that changed regulations in 2008 why didn't they see that just looking at the financials of Silicon Valley Bank that you know you're heavily leveraging bonds with bonds going up and even Larry Summers said the same thing. You guys made bonehead decisions but if you've got the president of the, the bank on the board of uh, the director, on the board of the uh, Federal Reserve in San Francisco so he's basically regulating his own bank. Mm-hmm. And then if you hire people who have no banking experience I mean I'm all about diversity in banking so you have different individuals who understand different communities but they got to have banking experience
0: so and just so everybody knows Johnny is looking for more work so if you want to make, you put him in the as a banker with there no experience go. there you go
1: but i mean we got to get out of this idea of hiring people just because they fit a demographical group we got to get people who who have experience in banking just like transportation you have to get someone who knows transportation like Is an example, I don't know where the confirmation hearing is, um, his status is. The the Biden administration nominated someone to be the the, um, director of the FAA. The The person was questioned. He has not a pilot, knows nothing about airline procedures and um, anything like that. But he's going to
0: Pete Buttigieg guy. No, no, no the other the other guy uh, is
1: going to run the faa but he has no aviation experience and when he was asked various questions about aviation related matters he didn't know so how is this person going to run the faa if he knows nothing about flying never been a pilot knows nothing about the basic functions of what goes on in there it's like pete Buttigieg. he's the secretary of transportation based off what Look at the Secretary of Granholm of the um, Secretary of Energy. She even commented, we need to be more like China when it comes to um, clean energy. China has producing more coal-fired plants and creates more greenhouse emissions than the whole developed world combined. But yet, you praise them, we still have a baby food formula shortage. Every time I go to the grocery store, I purposely go to the— baby food aisle just to see i went out and there's there's a shortage i went out to dinner on sunday as i talked with the server like i talked to everybody they couldn't i couldn't get a hamburger at that restaurant they didn't have certain items because they're having supply chain disruptions and we just we can't have people who are unqualified for these positions just because they meet a demographical check box check uh, check mark <laughs> you got a question? No. <laughs>
0: Don't even read it. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's all good. You can read it later okay. in the text. <laughs> what else is going on before we uh, sign off, John?
1: Well, you've got that. You obviously got the continuing um, war in Ukraine, but you also have the economy. The consumer and producer pricing mix came out. It looks like they dropped a little bit. But it's still it's still about six percent. Mm-hmm. So even though um, they're trying to get down to that two percent target limit, now there's a there's a hiccup. How far does the Federal Reserve go, considering you got this ba- banking problem, and if you don't if you don't. Cur- um, curtail certain things that you want to do, inflation will always be there. I want to see where we're at when it comes to energy So when we get into the peak driving season.
0: I have a scenario maybe, and maybe how do I compare it before we take off, is that, so working at the post office, I see a stamp. And everybody's amazed that it only costs, I don't even know how much a stamp. I work at the post office, I don't even know how much a stamp costs. But let's just say it costs... 55 cents. Okay. And everybody's amazed that I can be like, if I put this one stamp on this letter, it will go across the country and all it's costing me is 55 cents. And if you ask people how much they would actually pay for that stamp, they say, you know, a dollar, maybe even like a dollar 50. But the post office will only increase the rate of the stamp per inflation. So as inflation gets higher, that's and they'll they'll never go. However, they could. Put that stamp up for a dollar. Everybody's paying a dollar for it. And the post office will start making money because everybody's paying a dollar for a stamp. Hold on.
1: Okay.
0: Now, they're slowly eking up the interest rate. You know, and back in like the Carter Carter era, it was about like what, 15, 16%? Not got all the way up to 21%. Okay, 21%. So why not... uh, you know, we're kind of ripping the Band-Aid off slowly. Why don't we just tear that thing off, jack it up to that, you know, that 16 17% that would be ideal to combat this inflation, slowing down the market when it comes to loaning and buying goods and stuff like that, just so that people can quickly adjust and then watch the interest rate slowly well, go what back the, down. The,
1: what the Fed is trying to do, now when the Fed acted way too late keeping interest rates near zero, I mean, at zero for so long. Mm-hmm. So then they reacted by trying to stamp down inflation. What happened during the Carter years, which you suggested, is they raised Paul Volcker, about 80, 81, 82, raised interest rates to extremely high levels to, to keep the money supply out. But what it also coincided was President Reagan deregulating making more pro-business decisions because prior to that there was so much regulation the government was telling business how you will do almost everything so that kind of worked where once interest rates like stay stabilized and then it became more pro-business then the economy took off it went through a severe recession the fed is trying to prevent a severe recession like happened in 81 even though we've been
0: in a recession for almost more percent, more than almost a year now.
1: <laughs> unemployment unemployment during, under the Reagan recession went all the way up to 8.3%. So they're trying to avoid it going up to that level. But the problem is we have the the fiscal policy at the, the federal level, like with Congress and the president, they're spending more money instead of reducing the spending. So it's going to be interesting. The The Fed's got to thread that at the same time they're not getting cooperation from the uh, the Biden administration and the democrats they want to spend more thinking that's the way to fix inflation is stimulate the demand side Reagan stimulated the supply side create more supply and the demand will follow
0: yeah, yeah. all right John how can i go ahead and get a hold of you
1: well you can follow us by going to UbaldiReports reports at gmail.com or check us out on facebook instagram twitter um, obviously TikTok and all the other social media platforms. You can check us out wherever the podcast. You can find podcasts. Ubaldi Reports will be there. Um, let us know what you think. Our goal is to do this every day so we can focus on the top issues every day. So keep uh, supporting that and keep uh, spreading the word about Ubaldi Reports. We respect everybody's questions. We may not agree on everything, but we do respect everybody's questions. We do support um, American um, gunslingers who are um, one of the sponsors for Ebali Reports, and I guess Joe and uh, Ray will talk about that.
0: All right. Yeah, All American Gunslingers, we are a non-political podcast, and we like to talk about all things other than politics. So have a listen to us and maybe get a laugh. We we think we're funny. Know, so, we, laugh. <laughs> we, la- we laugh at each Georgia, other. <laughs> they get a little more edgier.
1: They get their devil's so, nectar in front of them when they do this. You can
0: catch us on all... Um, all social media platforms, uh, and all, you can catch us on Twitch, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. So check us out. We're All American Gunslingers, and um, just so everybody knows that Don Adams, you're an idiot. Have a good night.
1: All right, keep listening <laughs> to You Reports until next Wednesday. Follow You Reports every Wednesday at seven thirty Eastern Standard Time. Till next time, keep following You Reports. <laughs>